But that's a natural thing to have a trauma response. So I, I don't look at that. I look at it more like if they can pass that, that generational trauma to you, then they're also passing the generational gifts. They're also passing that generational resilience. They're passing that generational fire. I believe that your personal life and your professional life are inherently linked. And when you do the work on both sides, you can become the most successful version of yourself. This is a place where wisdom meets leadership, where success meets spirituality. Welcome to Do the Work with Denise Love Hewitt. Joy Donnell is a producer, writer, and strategist dedicated to the psycho-spiritual power of storytelling. Her work has been featured in W Magazine, HuffPost, and Vogue Italia, just to name a few. Her first book, Beyond Brand, explores the intersection of personal development and personal branding for legacy building through the media. Joy's latest short documentary, Inseparable from the Sunlight, shines a lens on our innate human connection to plants, the earth, and our cosmos. Her newest book, Show Us Your Fire, examines the power of disruption and our birthright to self-compassion. Joy also serves on the NASA Astrophysics Database of IDEA Practitioners. Thank you for being here. Thank you. I'm so excited to talk. I am too. So I just read your poetry book, Show Us Your Fire. And I don't think I quite knew what I was walking into. I know you, I know the things, the themes you explore. I know the work you do at See Me, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But I think what, there was so much that struck me in the book and I was, it was so joyful to read. So thank you. But in the, the book, you open up with a quote by Lola Bakari that reads, it's not your job to dismantle the systems that give you less than you deserve, but you can resist them by affirming your own worth. What a great quote. Why did you choose to open the book with that quote? Well, first of all, thank you for reading it. And even as you just spoke that epigram to me, I got chills listening to it be read aloud, right? Um, Lola is someone I connected with on LinkedIn, and she is an amazing thinker. She's basically a CMO whisperer. Mm. And um, I read this piece that she put in Harvard Business Review. At the time I was writing Show Us Your Fire, and when I read that line, it just perfectly summarized exactly why I was writing what I was writing and the, the ways I was moving through the, the work itself, right? Mm. That again, like, it's not your job to come here and use up all of your life force to try to dismantle something that you didn't build, that you are not at fault for or anything else, right? But by simply asserting your worth, the way that Lola so eloquently stated in that text, you go ahead and start to already dismantle it because your worth, your fullness will disrupt the thing. Right. Like so many times we, we look at the system and we're all like, oh, my God. And we and we understand set and settings and causes and conditions are very much affecting us on a daily basis. Absolutely. But part of why these systems keep succeeding in how they eat us alive is because we shrink ourselves to be consumed. So if you actually assert your fullness, you're going to automatically disrupt this world. And that's why I really wrote Show Us Your Fire. Beautiful. Thank you. So how would you advise someone 
to show up in fullness that's struggling maybe with a paradigm shift from living more in scarcity to living in abundance to shrinking themselves to fit a culture to stepping out of that like what would you tell someone as sort of like a roadmap to fullness I don't know if I have the exact roadmap yeah, you know like any of us do. Feel to right yeah. you know it's like it's sometimes it feels like it's a moving shifting roadmap right but so much for me opened up and changed when I got curious about myself so when I stopped looking at me like oh, I'm something that needs to be cured, mm. I'm something that needs to be called, and actually started to like have fascinating conversations with myself, like why am I responding to this like this? What do I actually want? How might I? What if? You know, those kind of propelling generative questions, which I think are intoxicating and very difficult to resist within yourself. Mm -hmm. And especially, especially if you are, feel like you are so far from yourself and you ask the right kind of propelling question, it becomes disruptive to you. Mm -hmm. And you literally go to sleep at night thinking about it. You wake up in the morning thinking about it. It's stronger than those outside forces that are trying to pull you away from yourself because you kind of have to get to the answer. Right? right. And in finding that answer, you're going to be sovereign in your wisdom and your knowledge because it's bringing you back home to you. So for me, it was just whatever kind of questions I could ask, whatever kind of curiosity I could have about myself in relation to why and when and what and how, right? And those what ifs and those how mights, that was what started to open me back up to me. That was what eventually brought me mm. to the beauty within myself to it was like a somatic abolition mm. right and i started to notice that oh this clenched jaw is not just a clenched jaw right my jaw is clenched in pain because of how i have been clenching it in moments of stress and terror right the way that my neck is hurting is directly uh, you know akin to exactly how i'm holding my body trying to get through you know these situations i started to realize how many times we get encouraged to normalize our nervous systems to clown shit yep Yep. and call that healing yeah. when it's just coping, right? You're not thriving. You're just figuring out how to deal with not actually getting what you need, no one caring about it, and you denying parts of yourself. Mm -hmm. And so that was just kind of the formula for me to start to make me be like, wait a minute, what's actually going on with me right now? Right. So Tina Lifford, who was on this podcast, and she um, runs the Inner Fitness Project, and, and she was on Queen Sugar on OWN. And Tina on the podcast said, asking a question is a spiritual technology. Yes. Because, and I think it's important when we say that, to do that when we ask ourselves questions, to let our shame and judgment fall away, because that's also a big thing, is when we're saying, why am I clenching my jaw like that? And then you start saying, well, because, you know, you start attacking yourself versus saying, what are the circumstances that are making me clench my jaw? And so I think that process has to be done. We have to hold ourselves in that process because mm -hmm. usually we're the meanest to ourselves. Yes. So, but I think that's such a beautiful way to start a process of knowing yourself so you can be full, right? Because you don't know yourself. How can you possibly be the fullest version of yourself? And I love what you said about like softening, right? Because that's why I said like the, that curiosity is a gentle approach, is a softening. And 
I, you know, I'm like a lot of people was like, why is my life not softer? Yes. I want this gentle life. And I started to realize that if I really wanted this soft life, the first thing I needed to do was soften toward myself. I needed to actually like be gentle with me. I have been taught to be so harsh toward myself as if I could be so exceptional that I would just perform my way out of oppressive systems. So the structures teach us that. They right. teach us to cap our joy. They teach us to, if you're like having too much fun, you're not working hard enough. And that's the, the dynamic of capitalism, right? Your productivity is your worth. So by just being or allowing yourself to be in your fullness, you are counteracting the system that doesn't want you to be that way. And I heard this woman say, she was saying, you know, I just, I, the, her big sort of revelation, I forget who it was, but I heard her on a podcast. She was saying that she had such a tendency to cap her joy. And she really had to ask herself, why do I do that? Why do I say, okay, that's enough. You've had your quota for the day. Why can't I have joy all the time? And why would I rob myself of that? And I think it's a really common thing that we all deal with, which is we don't allow ourselves to have the things we want. We don't allow because we don't feel like we deserve it. We are told that we're not enough. We tell ourselves we're not enough. And so I think it's just, just such a good point for us to remember that we deserve all the joy. I wish that needs to be actually on a coffee mug. Like, no, it's, it's a just, joy meter in me. I'm like, I have a thing called yes. the joy meter. I'm like, if it's not joyful, I don't want to do it. If it doesn't make me feel good, I don't want to do it. And I have to remind myself because I recently like slipped out of alignment. It's been a long time. I've had a lot of stressors the past seven months. A lot of sort of tragic things happen. And my number one tell is I have gut issues. And so they came back sort of into play after like a year of being fine. And my nervous system was very regulated. And then I was like, oh, something's off. And I had to like really quickly reframe my brain and I've done enough work to be able to like catch myself before I'm like too far down the path. But I saw this like TikTok of Eckhart Tolle and he was like, when you're stressed, you're not present. And I was like, oh man, you know, I was like, dropped my phone. I was like, okay, I am stressed. I am very stressed. So let me, where, where was I a year ago when I wasn't stressed? What was going on? And I was like, I was centering joy. I was letting some of the noise of life falter away and I had deeper trust. And granted, I have like a lot of stressful things happening right now, but I think I was able to just be like, okay, Denise, that's not who you want to be. Who do you want to be? And also as I'm entering a new chapter, whereas like I was largely like depleted over the past year, it's like I'm starting to build something new and I've never built something from this place. I've only built from the old place. And so that's been interesting to be like, well, how do you build from this new place that centers joy? How do you build from a new place that doesn't like glamorize hustle culture or grind? And so that was a big, I had to be like, you're doing the thing that you used to do that burnt you out. So how do you reframe that? I think that's been sort of the dance I've been in the past couple of months is trying to figure out how to keep that stasis and then build from the new place. Well, this is a new vocabulary, right? Like it's a different type of language. And that was one of the things that I started to realize, you know, both of my parents survived Jim Crow, North Carolina. Mm. So I was raised by two people who did not have space to think about, you know, depression, a lot of emotions and things like that. And they made a lot of amazing strides for our family. And they did kind of say like, sweetie, you can be whatever you want to be. Just run faster, jump higher, climb taller buildings. And that was true, too. And the promise was that that exceptionalism would make me undeniable, Mm -hmm. right? And there's some truth to that. There were some areas where I was undeniable. 
But again, if you know people want to go ahead and use the system as it is in right. place to utilize, it doesn't matter how yeah, undeniable totally. you are because the system can shut you out. And so then at that point, I started to realize I've actually never seen anyone really in my family rest. Mm. I don't know what rest looks like. And even as I, you know, looked at the, the history of rest, if you will, right, the, the theories of that, the, the fact that it had to be really a more modern concept because in a lot of indigenous cultures, there wasn't this whole thing of, okay, you have to define rest in these ways, right? But so much of what we think about with luxury, with wealth, with ease, with leisure has been shaped by uh, post-slavery, slavery, enslavement, colonialism, that whole thing, right? The wealth that was gained in Europe was gained from extraction of other people's joy and happiness. And so even in the States, when I would come across things, and I reference this and show us your fire, where like there were women in Greenville, South Carolina, black women uh, who were married to you know men that were coming back from the war, they didn't have to, uh, this was World War One. they didn't have to work outside of the home because there was enough money for them to actually be uh, at home, stay at home wives. And the white women could not find laundresses. Yeah and maids, right? So they actually went to the city council and there was a city ordinance that any black woman who was not working, gainfully employed, and could show it that she was gainfully employed with a card was gonna be arrested and or fined. Because how dare she rest? Mm -hmm. So even that is political, right? right? And so as I started to reclaim rest and like reclaim comfort, I realized that I did not have a vocabulary for it. I had to build a brand new vocabulary. And I think that's so much of what that curiosity, that that spiritual technology that is asking those questions is about. Because you're you're always going to move away from yourself, right? Like you're going to have these moments even sometimes of self-abandonment that I think is part of your journey so that you get get hungry for yourself in the right Mm -hmm. way and you find your way back home. But why we do these modalities, why we try to ground ourselves the way that we do is so that when you end up far away from yourself, you can still follow the little breadcrumbs that you've left to get back home and get back home quicker. Well, I think it gets easier that's the beauty of doing the work is that as my therapist says like life is about getting back to alignment and so when you do divert it's not oh no i'm completely now have to rest because i have no other choice because i've broken down my body and my brain and all these other things you're able to be like okay i'm going to check this before it gets too far away from me and i think that was like for me that was sort of the lesson but i want to talk about you bring up something i want to talk about anyways which i'm going to read a quote from your book and then we'll sort of talk about Um, the larger context. I wake remembering my place in a lineage that made a way out of no way. So I continue to make spaces for the possible within the impossible. These two sentences, like, really, I'm going to cry cry reading it. It was really profound. It was like really, really special. And then you talk a lot about your lineage and ancestry in this book. And so it's clearly a major theme. And was this a process of, when you talk about knowing yourself, knowing your history and reclaiming yourself, I'd love you to share some of sort of that process. I think everything that I learned in school, and I had a very good education, 
uh, very expensive education. And everything about it taught me to take the most beautiful, effervescent parts of my lineage off and throw them in the gutter, right? That if I wanted to have some sort of mass appeal or what was mainstream, that I needed to become something else. It was just audacious to even consider the fact that I'm already mainstream. Yeah. Mainstream is me, that uh, I already am transcendent. I don't need to transcend by taking off these things. So as I started to get more serious about being a creative, and I started to get more serious about writing, I found myself coming back to all those things that I had been told to put in the gutter. And honestly, Denise, that was where all of the wonder was. That was where all of the awe was. I remember it being in the garden with my grandmother, who had raised seven children, again, in Jim Crow, North Carolina, wow. right? And this woman has seen the worst of the worst, but she always gave me the best of the best, right? And she encouraged me to dream big. Um, th th there was no dream that was out of reach. The facts didn't matter after a point, you know, if the dream was actually big enough and you could see it in your mind's eye. It was, it was like my grandmother could just talk to the plants and the plants would grow. You know, I think nowadays you would probably have called her an herbalist, mm. right? But that wasn't the language that was around these things. And there was so much, um, I, don't, I don't like the, the term ancestral wisdom or indigenous wisdom because it's actually science. They yeah. gathered this through observation and experimentation, right? Research and yeah. gathering data and information. But there was so much of that within my family um, that is so easily considered folklore. Mm. Right, so easily considered superstition. Um, but these are the things that I bring into my writing or into my visual work and everything else, and it would just take it to the next level. And people would be crying from what they were experiencing. And I'm like, well, that can't be a coincidence. This is somehow, sort of way, really tapped into that human saga, um, where, why we're here, why we exist, what we're actually doing. So for me, we talk so much about ancestral trauma. I'm, never, I'm really not a fan of the term generational curses. Mm -hmm. I'm like, y'all, please stop calling everything the devil except for white supremacy ideology. Like, you're not cursed, <laughs> okay? Like, you're, yeah. not, you're, you're not cursed. You've been traumatized, yeah. and maybe your family has been having a trauma response, but that's a natural thing to have a trauma response. So I, I don't look at that. I look at it more like, if they can pass that, that generational trauma to you, then they're also passing the generational gifts. Mm. They're also passing that generational resilience. They're passing that generational fire, right? Well, with every trauma, we have a coping mechanism, and that coping mechanism is a gift that serves us until it doesn't serve us anymore. And so that's what we have to remember is like, every time we're like, okay, this terrible thing happened to me, we had something that helped us get through it. And that's something we need to honor and respect and say, thank you so much for helping me get through that. And then we can move past it. We don't need to carry it with us forever because some of those mechanisms, we outgrow them and we don't need them anymore. But I think that's such a great way to frame it for people, which is there is good, there's the duality of life. I mean, this is what I keep coming back to this year. It's been the theme of my year has been holding the good and bad all at the same time. Yes. I mean, that's the, 
that bittersweet place, right? So that's why there's a, another line that I said, like when you can actually hold your beauty and your terror in the same bittersweet embrace, I just feel that's gonna make a believer out of you. Like if you actually do that and you feel the complexity of that, um, it's, and I, there's a difference between complicated and complex, right? Like the complexity is rich. It is seeking harmony. Mm -hmm. The same way that nature is seeking harmony all the time, right? The wind and the sun and the trees and the seeds moving through the air and everything. There's a harmony to it. And sometimes it's, it's messy and that messiness yes. finds order. But I just read a book about this, which was talking about when we build organizations, that there's a natural order to things. When we try and create systems or we try and create the control or the, or the like, this is how it should work, mm -hmm. we're actually like going against nature because nature, it might have a messy way to figure it out, but it will always find order. Nature seeks order. Exactly. And that's, again, why you have to kind of look at these stories that you've inherited, right, and the, and the thought of what is the good way to go about doing things and just kind of like look at what were people thinking when they put this into place, yep. right? Because, uh, I, you know, I'm one of those people, I look at the, the age of enlightenment yeah. because I find that it wasn't so enlightened. No, it wasn't. <laughs> you know? Not really. Still not. <laughs> right. Yeah. And it was, there was actually uh, some things from like Kant's papers and things like that and, and Gauguin and all of them that I was looking at while I was writing this, this book. And it was so interesting how they grappled with like the, the existence of the savage, for mm. example. They didn't really know what to do because the savage was like beautiful, like there was beauty with the savage, but oh, you know, like the savage just doesn't operate within nature the way that they felt that you should operate within nature because you should just consult nature and then do what you want to do and bend nature to your will. Whereas they were actually, the savage was a savage because they were trying to work in harmony with nature. And now look, all these you know, centuries later, we're destroying the planet. We have completely demoralized the indigenous. We have demoralized the feminine because that's part of what you kind of have to do to destroy the planet that you live on yep. and rely upon for your very existence, right? We have fragmented people so much that I, I think part of one of the things that came up during the pandemic was that people had to sit with themselves. Mm -hmm. And we don't, we don't create a populace that knows how to sit with themselves. No. You're supposed to be so busy that you never have to think about what you are hungry for within you, right? You're supposed to stay so busy trying to achieve and try to strive and try to get some, some sort of performative acceptance that you're never supposed to actually be thinking about who are you? What do you really want? What are you called upon to do? What is compelling you? Where's your passion? What lights you up? Yeah. If you actually sit with yourself and start to ask those questions, it can really mess you up when you don't have framework around that. And I feel like that's so much of what came forward for some people during the pandemic because they were finally able to get like a pause and sit with themselves and ask themselves real questions and they didn't even begin to know where to go for some of the answers. Well, I think it's really confusing. I mean, I think I was someone who I do sit with myself quite a bit, but in the context, you know, and obviously that's, I want to honor people during the pandemic that were also, you know, working in the medical spaces and overworking and weren't able to have the same sort of pause that we had. And I sort of felt guilty because when it happened, it was like, I've been on this like 15 year treadmill 
And it was the first time in like 15 years I took a breath and everyone was like, oh, are you like upset that you can't like DJ or do all these things? And I was like, it's temporary. And frankly, I will take the break because I hadn't had one in so long. But in the process of that time, which was like, I can't go out to my gigs. I'm, I'm just, you know, at home doing some consulting work. It radically changed how I worked. And part of that was that I had nothing left to give. I was coming off like the, you know, dissolution of my company and I was depleted. But it gave me this, this opportunity to be like, okay, I don't want to work that way anymore. And so how do I want to work? And that was all the things I was asking. And what I found was by detaching to any sort of outcome or any sort of idea, what happened? Natural order happened. Things fell into place. Things figured themselves out. And I found myself living a much better life, making more money, doing less, doing all the things that I like to do. But it was just like, they lied to me. You know, I was like, I've been lied to. I was told that if I work really hard, I'll make more money. And I spent all these years in corporate Hollywood, grinding myself to the bone um, while, you know, all these men around me were doing the least and making the most. And I just thought, okay, if I keep working hard, it'll happen, it'll happen, it'll happen. And it didn't. And then I said, okay, I'm gonna start a company because I start a company, I'm in control. And like, then, not that it's any, being a white woman is very different than being a woman of color, but the idea of being, if I'm undeniable, then I can get X, Y, and Z. And so then that didn't work because the systems failed me. And so then it was like, well, none of what I've been told is true. None of that seems to work for me. And listen, it works fine for plenty of people, I guess. And I, my questions have become, are you listening to your body? Are we conscious within those frameworks? But it didn't work for me. And so then I had to come back to ground zero and say, okay, well, if none of those things work for me, what is going to work for me? And how can I still contribute to the world in the way that I believe I'm here to contribute? And as I, you know, I had a long conversation with my brother recently, and he's now on a very big, uh, journey of self-work and I could not be more thrilled for him but in the process he said to me he was like well if I do this what if my relationship to my ambition changes I said it will and I said and if you don't want to do the thing that you were doing before because it changes then you're doing it for the wrong reasons because I am still ambitious I still want to do big things I still have really big things that I want to contribute to culture but not at the expense of myself and that is the difference and so I said, I do it now for me, and I believe I'm creating the work that I, I want, the universe wants me to create. And if it resonates, it's great. If it doesn't, it doesn't. But I'm not going to kill myself to do the thing that I think I'm here to do. So that's not how we're designed to be. I resonate with everything that you said. Because, again, that was the message that I had received. And I just thought, okay, if I have to practically kill myself, you know, like to get to this place, I'll fix it. I'll fix it in post. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. But that's what a lot of people think. When I get here, think. I'll take the break. Right. I'll do this. I'll enjoy my life. I'll retire and then I'll do X. And it's like, what are we waiting for? Right. The thing to, to keep with the production metaphor, what we really know is that you fix it in pre. Yeah. You don't fix yeah. it in post. You, you cope in post. But if you go mm. ahead and like fix it ahead of time, you're going to have a completely different type of you know, pr experience on set with the production and everything else. Well, it's that way with your life, too. So I had been taught just, you know, like do what you need to do, get there. You can sleep when you're dead. Yeah, Hashtag totally. the team, no sleep, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And it's this glorification of wearing yourself into the ground, right? And also, too, kind of like this, this flex of like, I can work 
work myself to the to the bone and I can just afford to go to the doctor and have these things done to supplement the way that I am abusing myself. Right. And now you see that I'm spending money, right? Because I I mean I know people that like they yep. got to they're they're posting about really serious medical things on social media so that people know that they're spending money. Yeah. Not because they actually, you know, are trying to be transparent about the medical situation, but so that their neighbors don't think that they're poor. Right. Right. And so when does this performance stop? Well, it has to stop with you. And if that means that your ambition changes, what you are ambitious toward changes, the way that you become ambitious about yourself changes, well, maybe that's actually the change that is really needed. You know, and that's what I just found when I started to prioritize myself, Mm -hmm. that devotion to me, Mm -hmm. to actually being able to breathe from my belly, right? To go to sleep without anything on my mind. Right. um, And to sleep through the night, right? Not wake up at three o'clock in the morning, four o'clock in the morning, (gasps) because I would have those Mm -hmm. wake ups in total like panic because, oh my God, this and this, and I've got to go ahead and get this done and all these things, all these yeah. things on the, the list. The stress of the to-do list. All the stress, right? And it was never stopping my brain trying to figure it out even while I'm sleeping. So I'm not That's actually getting recuperative people. sleep. Which I always say, like the big thing when I had a startup was there's always more work to do so I can kill myself today or I can just figure out what to do tomorrow. And I had to learn to do that because otherwise you'll never stop working. Right. And now it's like, my view is if it's not life or death, it's not a problem. Everything is solvable. I am not going to spin my wheels about something that isn't life or death. That's it. But look look at how foreign that feels almost in the beginning. Well, to say it's radical. It's radical. Because for me, my work was my armor. It's also a way I define myself as excellent. It's a way that I define myself to myself. And it was a way to also push away intimacy, right? Because if I'm so busy, then I can't just sit here and connect with you. And yeah, it would sometimes, but it was always an excuse. If I have discomfort, oh, I have work to do. And that was my crutch. And I think as I, you know, delved into myself more and understood, you know, my attachment styles and all these other things, I realized how I was using work as a armor. And then now it's like my work isn't an armor. It's an expression of my being. It's like, you know, a scarf, a bracelet. It's not. But that's the work of integration. Yeah. Right. And so like Dr. Drew, who is someone that I think at the beginning of the book, she does a lot of work on radical self-integration. And I love when she gave me that terminology because it was something I understood once that she started talking about it, but I didn't really have language for that yet, right? Of like, oh, that's right. Like you've been fragmented. We get encouraged to compartmentalize ourselves, and that's part of how you win, how you cope. Like, are you thriving? How how much can you compartmentalize that? Right? We talk about things like work-life balance. I don't believe in that. I think work-life balance is total bullshit. Yeah. You have to have harmony. Mm. And just like we were saying, sometimes harmony doesn't even necessarily sound that harmonious, yeah. right? It can be kind of like that funky jazz that everyone's like, oh. <laughs> I don't know about this one, yeah, you know, totally. but there's still like a harmony to it. And that's what you're going for is to actually have that radical self-integration to come home mm-hmm. to you. And as I started to think through that, I'm now having this moment right now, literally as we speak, where my my worlds are, they're, 
they weren't separate the way that I thought. Like I thought about it almost like this little solar system, yep. right? And like, okay, here's this, the, 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 the legacy that I'm leaving, this is the sun, and mm. then all these little different things, sort of little planets, so here's my Mercury, here's my yeah. Earth, here's my Venus, here's my Mars and whatnot. And now I'm kind of realizing that no, I'm a storyteller, and the more integrated I become as a storyteller, the more that every which way that I tell a story merges together. Mm -hmm. So now I'm having these spaces where, okay, I'm on my second book, and it's a very different thing than the first book. The first book was nonfiction, and it was about personal development and personal brand and personal legacy. This is poetry. People didn't even know that I wrote poetry. I didn't think I was gonna write poetry again, but I had been anthologized with Alice Walker and Maya Angelou, you know, like big, heavy hitters. And I walked away from it because I was like, I can't be who I want to be within this space. And then during the pandemic, I realized, wait, the technology is different. Mm. I can be different. I am actually different. What if I start to integrate all of this? And I just, kind of reclaimed my publishing, set down like prints, went into my studio, and came out with a whole book wow. <laughs> by myself. It's not right. been my process of writing a book, but I love that that was yours. <laughs> right. Came out with a whole book by myself, right? And didn't have to worry about where is the publisher going to try to place me on the shelf and things like that because I reclaimed that process for myself too. And now I'm in these spaces where I'm talking about see me. I'm talking about, you know, my creative writing. I'm talking about what I speak about. I'm talking about like what we research all meshed together because mm. I'm, I'm the thing that's holding it together on the glue and I'm integrating myself more. And it's wild. Well, this is the hardest thing about being a multi-hyphenate is I feel this too, which is like I, have these, I used to have these, like you, I'm in the process of fusing everything together, but I used to have these very bifurcated worlds. And I felt like people wouldn't under, they don't understand if you're not one single thing. They want, you know, the culture we live in doesn't want you to be multiple things unless you're a celebrity and then you can have a clothing brand and then you can have a book and then you can do all the things. But if you're just a normal person, how dare you have multiple things that I don't know how to metabolize? Even though you're supposed to have a personal brand. Yeah. Like, how dare you not have a personal brand, but why are you having different products? That you're, a, you're a DJ that would also do this, that you're right. you know, a singer but would also do this. And it's like, why are we limiting ourselves to one discipline? Many of us are multi-talented or have multi-interests. And let, like, I went to a university that was like interdisciplinary, so we were taught how all these things collide together. But it still took me about 10 years to figure out how I wanted to bring those worlds together and how, frankly, how I felt safe and comfortable to, because I didn't feel like in the, that culture would receive it safely in the past. And so I think it's really amazing how you've done that. For everyone, I want them to understand what See Me is though, because we tease them at the beginning oh. of the episode. So I'd love them to just know what See Me is. So See Me, spelled C-I-M-E, but you don't say Sime, you say See Me because it's about representation. And we're the Center for Intersectional Media and Entertainment. So I co-founded this with Munika Lay, who is an independent producer, or studio executive, and Dr. Nicole Haggard, who is um, just amazing public intellectual, did all of her research on race, sex, and Hollywood, right? And so that sexual racism that got codified within Hollywood, especially during the production code era. And when Nicole shared her work with Monica and I, our minds were blown that we weren't talking about this more within the industry, right? Like, 
Just like everywhere else in the United States, there's this uh, tendency to want to be like, well, that was the past and we got past it and we decided, we realized that was kind of really fucked up, so we're not going to do that anymore and now let's just not talk about it We're going to do it in a different way. Right. So that was what happened with the production code era. It lasted from about 1927 to 1967. So you're talking about a 40-year period where you literally had to submit your script and your script had to follow a certain amount of rules that yeah. have been put in place by the Hayes era in, uh, of Hollywood production. And it was things like you couldn't show sexual perversion on yeah. screen, and they meant homosexuality. Yeah. They meant people who were transgender, right? You could not show miscegenation. So it was no sex between the races, but they really meant no sex between a black man and a white woman, because white men could have sex with anybody that yeah. they wanted to have sex with on screen, right? Um, so this is why you see things like that mindset of from The Birth of a Nation, uh, that movie, you know, for the black and white movie that literally uh, saw the black man's proposal to the white woman as a rape on screen, and then the instructional part for the white woman was to throw herself off a cliff rather than marry and possibly have babies with a black man. And now we go back to enslavement, right? Because there was kind of this problem that they had. If you were going to go into the slave quarters and rape the women that you had enslaved and create more slaves, how are you gonna enslave your own children? Well, you had to tether race to the mother. Mm -hmm. So it became matrilineal, which meant that only white women could give birth to white children and black women gave birth to black children mm -hmm. and those black babies would automatically be part of that enslaved population, right? So that mindset from all that way back then finds its way to 1927 and all of the, everything we see story-wise on screen around race and gender and sexual orientation is messed up because this code has been put into place and it's considered to be what is morally correct, right. how to show human beings on screen, right? And so then the production code gets thrown out and they're like, oh my God, that was embarrassing. And we're, I mean, we're so embarrassed and like, we can't believe that we held on to that that long. We're not gonna do that anymore like that. Now we're just gonna have it be the rating system. But it didn't go away in the rating system. It just went from not being able to be seen at all. We're not gonna show it on screen to you at all. And if we do, we're gonna be real careful about how we show it to now you can see it, but we gotta do something with it. We gotta punish it, right. okay? It's not gonna be abided by. Right. So now all these weird plot punishments come into place. And Nicole literally mapped out how like, you can't even make this up. Yeah. A white woman and a black man meet on screen, have the traditional romantic arc, right? So they meet on screen, they fall in love, they have sex. Do they end up at the, together at the end of the movie? No. Here's one of the things that would actually happen. She would get found to be mentally insane, mm. would get put into the institution, would be cured of her insanity, and then end up with a white man. Of course, yeah. Now let's think about eugenics yep. in this country. If a white woman actually gave birth to a black child, you know, a half black child in the hospital, she would be found to be mentally insane because she, she was feeble-minded. Then she would get put into the institution and sterilized against her will 
so that she could not keep doing that, right? We've been mapping the way that race and sexual racism has been codified within Hollywood on screen, messed up the comps, right? Messed up the money, the access, what was able to get made, who was able to tell the story, who's get centered, what the quality of those stories are around those bodies from the moment of when they weren't be able to be shown at all to once they were shown on screen, you had to tell a certain story around them, right? And how that is still affecting us right now in 2023 and beyond. So we're actually mapping the critical mm. space around how we tell stories, and we're showing that the past is not past. I mean, we can see it with the legislation that's happening now. I exactly. mean, when you're having lawmakers threatening to kill women if they have an abortion, sending to a death sentence, I mean, this is not about pro-life. This is about holding up white supremacy and holding up a, a narrative of this country that is no longer relevant. And it's really, it's hard to, you know, it's not surprising because this is what this is built upon. This is what this country was built upon and that's why we're here because that's built in the fabric of every single industry, every single, the, our politics, our government institutions, like it's built upon white supremacy. But it's disappointing, I guess, to see people fighting so hard to keep it and I guess it's the reality because that's what you do before it dismantles is you have to well, they think it's working it. for them but course, it's not course. working for anyone it's maybe working for one percent of one percent right but most people is not working for them and that's why i think we see so much chronic illness right mm -hmm. and then we have people who literally die because they can't afford health care they can't get the kind of health care no, that they need that doesn't that's not just a race thing that's affecting lots of people i grew up in the south yeah. there's lots of people of all races that they can't actually afford the care that they need right they're dying from things like salt and sugar um, as well as stress and environmental stressors and their their water being polluted and things of that nature it's not actually working for anyone no, when I you're mean, stuck we, on the highway. Greed has poison <laughs> right. everyone, whether that's from like the air, the food, you know, everything we're talking about. And this is what I talk about now because I have a friend who's been recently diagnosed with cancer and she didn't, I get colonoscopies because I am have GI issues, but I was like, anyone, everyone 30 plus needs to be getting a colonoscopy yes. because we are eating poison. Like the greed of big pharma and big agriculture and all these things, we're not eating food that is good for us. So we have to take care of ourselves. But how, but how expensive is it to care of yourself? Very expensive. Right. So then you're asking people that don't have means to spend money that they can't spend to make sure that they're healthy. And it's just the whole thing is just nonsensical, crazy making. This is part of why you have to do that work, too, of asking those questions, right? Like asking those questions that are actually going to propel you and be generative for you yes. to come back home to yourself. Because, yeah, we're in this extraction system that has been brilliant at figuring out how to turn everything that you need as well as what you want into a commodity, yeah. right? And you have to sit there and you have to ask yourself, how important is this thing to me? How do I actually want to not just like spend my time, but how do I want to actually use the resource that is my money? How do I actually want to, how do I want to build community around myself? How do I want to think about wealth differently in relation to me? And I, I like the idea of building the wealth of myself, mm -hmm. right? Well, we are not well if we are not healthy. And this is the thing. This is what we keep, like I'm keeping like, you can have all the money in the world. And I know a lot of people who made a lot of money 
in big corporations at the expense of their health. So now they're retired, they're very wealthy, and guess what happens? They cannot enjoy their life. They cannot go to the things that they said they were going to do when they retired. And so that's, for me, I'm like, what is what is the cost of, of that? Life is not about money, it's about us feeling at home in ourselves with people we love, and that's what everyone they say. When you, when you die, you have the regrets that people have, because they didn't spend enough time with people they love, they didn't take enough care of themselves. And so this is really at the crux of the system we live in. It's designed to keep us this way. And the more that we can understand that we are enough, it doesn't have to be this way. I think the more we're going to live in the future in the world that we want to be in. I mean, this is, you know, part of my journey, that somatic abolition and embodiment has been me really starting to better appreciate how I operate in the world. Mm. Everyone does not operate like this, but I've always been disruptive. Yeah. I would always be the person, even when I was in school, I, I would raise my hand, I would ask the question that the teacher would be like, Joy, can you just stop? Can you maybe go outside? I don't have time to explain to you. I don't know what Lot's wife's name was. You know, like, <laughs> it doesn't matter. She was a salt at the end, yeah. you know. And I would just always be asking these questions that no one wanted to answer. And as I was the one to voice it in the room, the other, you know, people would be like, oh, yeah. Even a lot of times within, like, you know, working environments, so on teams, campaigns, yeah. and things like that, I would say the thing. And then I, and everyone would just be like, <gasps> and then in Slack, I would be getting all the messages. Like once the meeting was over, Joy, thank you for saying what you're yeah. saying. Thank you. Uh, right. So then I started to realize, oh, I'm actually at my happiest when I'm being disruptive mm. towards some bullshit. Why don't I embrace that? Mm. What might it look like if I started to embrace that? Because I was constantly getting messages that I was supposed to be less, right? Yes, there was something extra about that that I needed to kind of pull that back a little bit, right? You're too much be because more, you're right. threatening the hierarchy. Right. Be more palatable yep. in that in that regard, you know. But no, most of the time, pretty much everything that we appreciate on this planet is a result of collision in one way or another. Mm. The water that we have arrived in a comet. That comet smashed this planet. That was painful. Yeah. Right? That that must have hurt yeah. this planet. It did things to the very ecosystem of the planet. Even oxygen that we breathe, that was a very violent transaction mm. for the planet. And the way that like the iron and things like that released that and now we have air that we can yeah. breathe. So we sit on the beach and we look at all that water and it runs up across you know, our feet and we breathe that air and we feel wonder and we're so grateful, right? We feel blessed to be experiencing this as if it just happened that way. And it wasn't a result of a lot of collision and change and destruction and growth, right? So we're not actually really good at knowing what destruction looks like and what growth looks like. Mm. The islands form because the plates knock against each other and the volcano erupts and all that lava is hitting that water and it's very violent. It's easy to call that violence. It's a collision, right? But Pele is creating as she is destroying. Mm. She is destroying as she is creating. And that is change, right? That is growth. So I like, I think there is such thing as sacred disruption. Mm. And I started to look into that and 
I'm not the only one who thinks that. No. <laughs> you know? So it's like, ah, oh, there's nothing new under the sun. Everything has ancestry. Everything has totally. a wisdom tradition, right? Even when you feel set apart, there's a tribe within feeling set apart. That's not just this um, thing that has never happened to anyone else before or anything like that. So everything has this ancestry to it. And I started to think, well, I should probably walk in the wisdom tradition of sacred disruption. I should probably go ahead and embrace the ancestry that is sacred disruption. And since I am in flow state, yep. when I am being disruptive, and it's a lot of times freeing, not just for myself, but for the people around me, so it doesn't, it's not just an individual flow state, yeah. it becomes a group yeah, flow, state. flow state. There's got to be something to that. It's some sort of magic. Right. So as I started to ease into that, wow, like what happened for my gut? Mm. What happened for my nervous system? Mm. The amazing, right? The way that I'm going ahead and able to connect dots quicker because that inner critic is not there, dropped right out, right? And I'm in alignment with myself. Everyone is not disruptive like that. And I know we need some people to be more conservation-minded, yeah. right? Um, it's, a, it's really, we're doing this as a band, right? It's a no, jam session. You have session. to find your own unique genius and your alignment, and that is in order with your alignment. But that's, most of us aren't living in a flow state or in our alignment. No. So when I'm flowing in that state and I'm like, okay, let's be disruptive about this. And that person, you know, who's in their flow state, but that conservative mindset is like, oh, but we need to think about this. We need to do that. I'm like, oh, you know, that's a good point. <laughs> okay. It's like, I'm malleable about that because it's not about me being right. It's no. about me owning the, the way that I'm supposed to show up in the space the variable that I am totally. in the space on a physics level, that I'm supposed to shake things in a certain way so that we start to think about what's totally. possible on the other side. And those of where differences make us better. They come up with better ideas, they make us more interesting. And I think all those components are needed. And unfortunately, we're living in a culture where we are we value homogeneity over the diversity. And those are the things that actually make the world works. We, we, it wouldn't work if we're all the same. Well, because the thing is that if something's trying to keep you in a certain way, something's hunting you. Yeah. And it, I mean, I, I look, I was trained in, you know, war communications. So I'm going to go sometimes to that thing of like, there is something hunting you, something chasing you. And it is that, that, you know, homogeneity. It is that hegemonic mindset yep. toward things. Because it's easier to know where to find you. Of course. If you're just in this, you this little in box. Right? You in your book. I loved it. I loved it. I was like, that's so true. I hadn't thought about that. Well, you are magic. You are undeniable. And I am just so happy to have you here. I loved reading your book. I'm so happy to see you expand into these other areas of your magic. Thank you. Yeah. So we're going to jump into our rapid fire section. What would you tell your 20 year old self? Ooh. I think I tell my 20-year-old self, girl, be disruptive. Hmm. You know, I didn't quite know that at that point. I thought that it was being extra, that I needed to be less. And I think I would say, no, you're here to be disruptive. Go ahead and own that. And you're doing better than you think. Yeah. What's the last book you read? I actually recently reread The Second Sex mm. uh, because I'm about to send it to my niece. 
And she was like, I've never read this. So I went through it again and I was like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. It was interesting to revisit that. Totally. Because I hadn't read it probably in about 10 years. I love that. Yeah. What is bringing you joy right now? Mm, romance is bringing me joy right now. Ooh, that's another, that's another episode. I can't wait to hear about that. We'll talk about that later. Okay. We love that. Good for you. That is my word for 2023 is romance in all things, love even that. within my work, romanticizing my life, right? Love. Like taking that little bit of extra time to just put that little spark of romance mm. into, into everything that I'm doing. And that's kind of, that's the, the energy I'm flowing in right now. I love that. What are you struggling with right now? I think I'm struggling with folks. Like, I'm struggling with people. Uh, people yeah. have probably always been a struggle for me in a certain way, but yeah, like I'm struggling with folks. And I have a tendency, even though I'm quite gregarious and I'm verbose, I also have this hermit side mm-hmm. to myself. So I'm struggling to not just like be like, and go into my cave. Yeah. Yeah. What is the best piece of advice you've ever received? I think probably the best piece of my advice I ever received was from my grandma. She said, you can't eat everybody's cooking. It's true. And it's so true. And if you think, and if you expand that idea to be like, you can't just ingest whatever someone wants to give you, you got to be careful what you bring into your mind and your heart and your body, your spirit. Uh, it just kind of always rings true. You can't eat everybody's cooking. No, you cannot. Mm-mm. But I'll eat yours. Here we are for this week's takeaways. Get curious about yourself. As we said, asking a question is a spiritual technology. The more we get curious about ourselves, the more we know ourselves, the more we can really start to figure out what we are here to do and how to do it. Our trauma coping mechanisms serve us until they don't. We need to honor and respect them, but also know that we don't need to carry all of them with us. We have to have harmony and the bittersweet place you might be living in, which might be holding the good and the bad at the same time. It might be harmony. It just might sound like funky jazz, as Joy said. Build the wealth of yourself. I love this one. It feels really in line with everything we love and believe here at Do The Work. Collision is creating as she is destroying Such a good one to remember as our lives often feel like they're falling apart. Maybe that destruction is a creation. And the last one that I really, really love, be disruptive. Do not be afraid to be disruptive. Joy embraced this as her purpose and I relate. That's a part of my role here too. So we encourage you to take that with you this week and beyond. (laughs) thank you so much this is so good I wish we had more time thank you all so much for listening it really does mean the world to me if you could take some time to subscribe not only to our audio channel which you can find anywhere that podcasts can be found but also our youtube with all of our video episodes if you can subscribe rate and review it would make such a huge difference to us i want to give a big big thank you to parentheses produced wine designs media young spielberg and young scorp consulting this really couldn't happen without any of them this really is the little pod that could thank you guys so much and see you next week Thank you.